Good afternoon. My name is Frederick Eriksson and I am one of the directors at the European Centre for International Political Economy. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the discussion we're going to have here this afternoon on trust and trade openness for COVID-19 vaccines. I want especially to welcome Simon Evanet. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon to discuss about this issue. Simon is a professor of international trade and economic development at the University of St. Gallen and is also, as many of you will know, one of the world's leading thinkers and scholars of international trade. He founded and leads the Global Trade Alert, among other things, and he recently also co-authored a very interesting study together with some colleagues at the European University Institute on production, trade and global linkages in vaccines. The paper is called The COVID-19 Vaccine Production Club Will Value Chains Temper Nationalism? So thank you very much, Simon, for, for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Frederick. It's great to be back. Simon, the topic for today, I don't think it require much of an introduction. I think most people will have followed the news and seen uh, the developments over the past couple of months. The situation is that we have several vaccines that have been approved and everyone, of course, want to vaccinate people across the globe as soon as possible. But given the fact that global production capacity is limited and probably will remain so for another few quarters, it means that we have governments that are looking at different measures they can take or already have taken to make sure that the vaccines are going to go to their countries first and that they can jab their own populations sooner than other countries can. And that, I believe, led to increasing fears about vaccine nationalism and that government measures introduced in the past and now will actually have the consequence of slowing down the expansion of production capacity and also interfering with supply chains, leading to a situation where the actual supply to people will be lower than it could be. So, Simon, if we start on this issue with current restrictions, where are we now and what type of restrictions on trade have we seen for vaccines and COVID-19 vaccines in the past months or so? Let me summarize the current situation, if I may. We have one uh, export authorization regime, which is in effect, which is from the European Union, and I'm sure we'll unpack that more later. We have no country has a formal export ban that I know of. We do have a number of countries which appear to have informal arrangements which frustrate or delay exportation of vaccines. Some of those are tied to the procurement contracts which governments made. And this argument is, I think, legitimately made with respect to the United States and the United Kingdom. And we also have the case of India, where the Indian government has now on four occasions made official statements saying that it will prioritize domestic vaccination over the exportation of vaccines primarily to other developing countries through the COVAX facility, although exports to industrialized countries are implicated as well. So that's uh, very much the status quo of uh, the situation. We have, of course, other vaccine producers, China and uh, India. China, from my understanding, has uh, modulated its exports over time. It has not uh, been the massive exporter of vaccines that people thought. And it's also thought that Russia has difficulty scaling up the production of its Sputnik vaccine. And so they're limited in supplies too. So when you put this all together, for different reasons, we have uh, quite considerably constrained supplies on global markets for this uh, absolutely essential vaccine. All right. So if we unpack that a bit more, so we have export restriction regimes, and you, you pointed to India and the European Union being two of them, even if we're not talking about export bans, it's export restrictions, while other countries are using other measures. Do you see any fundamental difference between them? I mean, I suppose all of them have the objective of trying to improve the national or the local supply, but they may differ, for instance, in the, how they relate to rules on trade, Absolutely. So, I, I mean, one important point of distinction has to do, of course, with the level of transparency associated with regimes. Uh, for example, in, although the Indian government has made four statements where they have linked the exportation to, or, or exportation of vaccines to domestic uh, uh, needs, 
Uh, they have never announced a regime where they're explaining how they make those calculations and when. Instead, one is left to infer it from the statements made and from the underlying data on vaccine exports, which the Indians, to their credit, do publish. So the Indians have a pretty murky regime. In the European Union, there was a fairly, well, somewhat more transparent export authorization regime brought in at the end of January and then extended. This regime has now been um, reinforced and in ways which pr probably made it less transparent. Uh, so now the Commission will allow exports to be, or exports not to be authorized if a country which uh, they're being shipped to has a higher vaccination rate or is in a less severe ep epidemiological situation. These are two of the reasons which are being used by the Commission to uh, deny exports. And what is also, I should say, clear is that the range of countries which are exempted from the EU's regime has now gone down significantly as well. So the regime is um, perhaps a lot less generous than it was back in January, and in some sense, a lot less transparent as well, because we don't know the criteria by which this new EU, EU regime will be implemented. And furthermore, it's unclear how the member states will interpret this text as well, because they do play a part in deciding whether or not to, an export will be authorized. So we have a, a much murkier regime in Europe, but one which I think is ultimately trying to uh, set up a, a negotiation with the major vaccine exporters or vaccine producers to try and get them to ship more to the European Union. Is it fair to say that the new regime that was brought in by the, or that was proposed by the Commission last week, that one of the main effects is basically that it's going to reduce the ability of AstraZeneca to export from European factories to the UK? Is that a right interpretation of it? I would say that's one that's one one aspect. The other aspect is the big difference between the last regime and the current regime is that the old regime said that if a company like AstraZeneca was not meeting its commercial obligations to European Union governments, then its exports could be blocked. But if you if a company like Pfizer was meeting its obligations, then there was no grounds for blocking Pfizer's exports. Under the new regime, as I read it, that second guarantee that if you're meeting your obligations to the EU, you can export to the rest of the world, that's now um, in doubt because an additional requirement has been put in which says that uh, exports can be blocked on grounds of reciprocity or different type of uh, epidemiological situation in the destination country. And so what I think that means is that a, com a company who is a vaccine producer in the EU who has met all of their commercial obligations to the EU may still find that its exports are blocked. And that must be a big source of frustration for those companies which, are, which feel like they have played by the rules. There's one other really very curious thing about the current and the previous EU export authorization regime is that these are, it's a regime which stops a, a vaccine producer from exporting, but those uh, putative exports remain the property of the company that produced them. And so there is no guarantee that if 250,000 doses of AstraZeneca vaccine are prevented from going to Australia, that those 250,000 doses end up in the arms of, of Europeans. So this is an export authorization regime. It is not an expropriation or a requisition regime. And so we end up with a situation of the worst of all worlds where you could end up blocking exports to a foreign country and thereby slowing down their vaccination drive and recovery from uh, COVID-19 and exit from lockdown, and yet at the same time not accelerate it here within Europe, because authorization regime is not an expropriation or a requisition regime. That, I think, Frederick tells us that, I mean, once this, um, I think, becomes clearer and clearer, surely there will be pressure on the Commission to, if not expropriate, at least buy these banned exports, right? Because that's the only way in which an export ban actually translates into extra inoculation. I think we have all been making implicitly the assumption that the export ban would translate into more jabs in Europe. But formally, and, and I have spoken to a number of people about this, there's nothing in this current authorization regime which ensures that a blocked export actually translates into additional inoculation in Europe. A major flaw in the design, to be honest. Yes, indeed. And and then sort of you would make the argument that if you actually want to go down this route, you need to go it the full way, right? If you 
if you want to take restrictive measures in order to vaccinate your own population ahead of others, it may be the case that Europe may need to go down the route of actually expropriating assets that belong to a company, right? I mean, that's where the logic takes you. I'm, please don't regard, uh, I mean, I do not want to be seen as endorsing expropriation <laughs> or requisitions of private uh, assets. But it does seem to me that if you pursue the apparent logic which has been articulated by various European Union officials or European Commission officials in particular, that at some point it must take you to expropriations and requisitions. Otherwise, you'll just have lots and lots of vaccines piling up in warehouses in Europe and not getting into people's arms. Indeed. What do you make of the claim that United Kingdom's also basically runs an export restriction regime? I mean, that's something we heard, for instance, from Charles Michel and a few other European leaders. Well, okay, this is the, I, I carefully made the distinction earlier that the UK and probably the US has done this through the manner in which they either procured their vaccines, either through the procurement contracts or um, through the subsidies which were offered to develop the vaccines. And I, in the case of the UK, I think there's evidence from government, well, there's statements by government ministers to the effect that they did both. Okay. Now, this is tantamount to limiting the supply which is going to world market. To, to international markets, and in that sense is is regrettable, but it is of a different nature than what the export authorization regime of the Commission is doing. I must say, and again, you know, I think one of the big issues that we will, I'm sure, come back to is um, where where both the Americans and the British put a lot of attention was in scaling up production. And it's my understanding that uh, the British government essentially requisitioned two factories for AstraZeneca at the beginning of this process to get the ball rolling in terms of production. And so in that sense, and there are other examples of this, it looks like the Americans and the British thought about scaling up along the entire value chain in so far as they could do it, as much as they could. And that might have been a better way of thinking about the problem, trying to match the inevitable surge in demand with an increase in supply. And we need the two things to rise together. And so we need a mix of policies which does that. And of course, having built up this capacity, of course, the British government was going to be fairly insist on ensuring, insistent on ensuring that the vaccines that were produced would have, at least in the first option, be supplied to the British people first. So you, you can see how this came together. It's still tantamount to a limit on exports. And for those of us who are, are worried about that type of behavior by governments, and um, there is a source of concern. And in America, we have, as you just were talking about, different type of incentives that were provided by the US government through Operation Warp Speed in order to scale up production very fast. And of course, to help companies with resources to fund development and of course, trials. But they also talk about the Defense Procurement Act in America and that, and that this act may have limited the ability of America to export if it could. So what do you say about the United States? Are they also having both sort of informal and perhaps even formal restrictions on how they, or their ability to trade with the rest of the world? Right, again, it, it falls, I think, into the realm of policy instruments other than an ex explicit export ban, which are tantamount to limiting exports. I should add, by the way, that my understanding of how the Defense Production Act works is that once a particular producer perhaps of vaccines is designated as a beneficiary of this particular legislation then its suppliers have to give it priority so they can that would mean then that an American supplier would have to give a vaccine producer a priority over another American customer too so the the impact is also within the United States as well as cross-border but you know if you're the Serum Institute of India so what? You're sitting there thinking, I can't get my hands on the supplies I need. And that evidently is what has triggered the comments from the CEO of that organization. And so, yes, you can you can construct export curbs and export limits in a large number of different ways. And it seems to have happened here. I think these are all fair points to make. But ultimately, what we need to do is to scale up production. So one has to talk a bit about uh, how to get that done in a way which makes sense and doesn't to enormous violence to the trading system. Indeed. Let's come to that in a minute, Simon. I want us to talk a little bit first about what we know about trade in not just the finished vaccines, but also in the input components that mm -hmm. 
are necessary in order to produce the vaccine. So we have now talked about Europe, UK, India, and the United States, four countries that obviously are producing vaccines. Are there other countries as well that participate in the production and trade of these things that are important? I mean, China, of course, but uh, if you can sort of paint us a picture of what the trade situation looked like in vaccines. Right, I'm happy to do so. So it's best, I think, here to think about not just the vaccine, the final vaccines themselves, but also the ingredients into those vaccines. In particular, there are certain key ingredients which are absolutely necessary to get both of the two types of vaccines, which are two broad types which have been produced. And 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 you made reference earlier to this uh, working paper that uh, Bernard Hochman, uh, Michaela Ruta, and uh, Nadia Rocker and I wrote recently. And we were very surprised when we looked into the uh, trade data for the final vaccines, as well as for uh, vaccine ingredients, that there's essentially 13 countries which are responsible for the lion's share of the shipments of those ingredients and the final products. And they include the countries that you've mentioned. You can add to those uh, to that list uh, countries like Canada, which export certain very critical uh, lipids. And uh, you can add Switzerland for sure to that list. And also there are you know, some other smaller players like Argentina who are important suppliers of certain one or two um, ingredients. And so there is this, what we call a vaccine producers club of about 13 countries. They source about 88% of all their vaccine supplies from each other. And when it, you look at their trade between each other, not overall trade, they source about 68%. So there's a 20% gap between ordinary sourcing patterns and what you see in, in, in the vaccine producers club. Now, you might ask, so what? Why do we care about this vaccine producers club? Largely because in principle, you could end up with a situation where each member of the vaccine producers club thinks twice about putting in place export curbs because they might be retaliated against by other members of the vaccine producers club. If you think that those types of that fear of sort of mutually assured destruction, to use a Cold War analogy, is the right way to think about it, then you should not see any formal export bans. What you're likely to see instead is a lot of chiseling around the edges with informal export bans, which is, I'm afraid, what we have seen. And so when you look at the, you know, we economists would call the industrial organization of this sector, and certainly the allocation of production in this sector, it's not hard to understand why we've ended up with very murky forms of export curbs rather than the more transparent types. Because the more transparent types, it would be very hard to ignore them and they would almost certainly trigger retaliation. Well, let me just make one last um, observation here. When we looked at the European Union imports of uh, vaccine and vaccine ingredients, in particular vaccine ingredients, in the period as far as we could into the pandemic and before, we found that the EU sources quite a lot of its vaccine ingredients and final vaccines from China and the United States. And it's quite noteworthy that the EU has not really been picking a fight with either of these two jurisdictions about vaccine exports. And they, if anything, they have made requests to the United States and they have been politely turned down, but they have not thrown the same grenades at Washington that have been thrown at London, for example. And so you're left then with a sense that maybe there is a, an understanding somewhere of these uh, interdependencies and the need for the vaccine producers to be actually ideally pulling together. They're not at the moment pulling together. They're at least not pulling apart as much. And uh, I think this helps you understand why the EU has been a, a lot more gentle with the suppliers of multiple ingredients like the US and China in comparison to the UK, where there's obviously a different situation. And is it only the EU that have sort of developed this, its thinking in that way? Or can you say that, you, you know, countries like India that have introduced measures that they are also careful about exactly who they are targeting? Because the risk is, as you say, that you get into a mutually reassured destruction here when, when you take measures against countries who are actually supplying you with the inputs necessary to produce. So it is interesting that, so let's take the case of India. I mean, if you think about the two suppliers I talked about, China and the, and the United States, India does import uh, quite a lot of APIs from China. And even though India has been having fights with China in lots of trade areas, they have not been doing so, in my understanding, in, in the area of farmer ingredients. With respect to the United States, um, the Indians do import lots of uh, uh, vaccine uh, ingredients, 
But since the United States is producing most of its vaccines domestically, so production in the US for the US, the Indians, any Indian threat to cut the United States off the supplies of final vaccine isn't very credible because the US wasn't sourcing from there in the first place. And so I think when you look at India, a specific set of circumstances, which are different, or to put it differently, maybe the fact that the EU sources from both the US and China so extensively for vaccine ingredients is a special situation in and of itself. One interpretation of thinking about production clubs and following the analysis that you have in your paper is basically that you have, as you point out, an interest basically on the part of every member of the production club to be careful with what type of measures they introduced against others. The other way to look at it is, of course, all the countries that are not members of the production club and that neither can leverage any supply they may have of final jabs or any input component they have to other parts of the world. So you know, taking this theory forward, isn't this an invitation to many other countries in the world to begin thinking in vaccine nationalist terms as well, in the sense that if other countries that are members of, of the production club now are taking measures which have the effect of predominantly cutting the supply to them, you know, a country like Australia, for instance, uh, that Italy introduced, or it denied an export authorization of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine to, to Australia. But wouldn't it have sort of a medium term, even perhaps even in the short term, an interest now to quickly set up their own production capacities in order to avoid being too dependent on other countries? So in short, I fear the answer is yes to your question. But let me start by saying you're absolutely right, and we do make the point in the paper that uh, there's uh, many, many countries, in fact, there are many more countries outside the Vaccine Producers Club than inside it. So if you're looking at this problem from a sort of global point of view, and you should analyze a global pandemic from a global point of view, because none of us are going to get through this until all of us have, or at least almost all of us have, then uh, we need, uh, you know, we need we do need to worry about the, com the countries which are dependent upon uh, foreign production. Now, to the second point, countries may well, who are outside this production club, may decide that they want to get inside it rather quickly. And indeed, it's interesting you use the example of Australia, because one of the conditions that Australia attached to its contract with AstraZeneca was that I believe 20 million doses had to be produced in an Australian factory. And so the Australians use their procurement contract essentially to insist on some degree of local production. And you could imagine that the thinking may have been that that was a necessary insurance policy should vaccine nationalism take off aggressively around the world. Now, when you're thinking further, medium term, longer term, you do have to worry if uh, you know, many countries are now going to draw lessons from this episode and think that they need to uh, have their own vaccine production facilities. And uh, I think one of the things we surely have appreciated is if production is concentrated in a small number of places around the world, it's probably a very good indication that there's uh, either economies of scale or you need to have production in, in limited places so as to keep it up to a certain quality, which in the case of vaccines is important for health and safety reasons. And so you do have to wonder if that natural commercial logic, if it's undermined by having production dotted all over the world, the cost of these vaccines are likely to rise substantially per unit and possibly also the safety go down. And there may be other considerations as well. There's also an important technical consideration as to whether we have enough talent to be able to manage all these facilities at the moment. So it is a, a recipe what you're describing, this is the reaction that is to vaccine nationalism, it is a recipe for a lot of inefficient and possibly unsafe production over the medium term. But uh, you know, as you lay out the logic, um, some countries may decide that it's un it's intolerable being outside this club, just in the same way that some countries think it's intolerable being outside the club of countries with nuclear weapons as well. It's exactly, the parallel is frighteningly close. Indeed. A question that I received from a person who listened to this is, is there any example of a country that is an input supplier? They don't, they don't produce the, the final dose of vaccine itself it just sort of supply inputs to other countries that have leveraged that supply in order to avoid getting exposed to export restrictions so a country that i played hardball with a, a supply country 
I don't know of one yet. I can understand why the question has been asked, but I know of no country which is no supplier which has played such a hardball game. And by the way, if a supplier had done that, they may not want to advertise the fact. Yes, no, indeed. The one example that I've at least been written about in media is that the UK, I think, supplies some inputs to Pfizer production in Europe, right? And there has been talk about whether any export restriction from the right. EU should be reciprocated with an export ban on, on the inputs. Right. So I think your first question was about whether a country had already done this. Yeah. Uh, and I think this, what you're describing now as a hypothetical for the future, should um, things really take a turn for the worse, which I hope they don't. But I think your, you know, your question highlights exactly the type of interdependence here, which has developed naturally over time and should continue, in my view. And we need to find a way of allocating the vaccines that we have and scaling up the production that we have, rather than thinking in zero-sum terms about short-term grabs of vaccine. All right. So, Simon, uh, moving on from here, what should be done in order to improve the situation? I mean, you, you talk in the paper about basically de-risking investments and making sure that we can expand production capacity as soon as possible. So how would we do that? Right. So the objective is clear. We need to increase our production of vaccines now. And if we need to have booster jabs in future years, we're going to need that production capacity for a number of years at least. And so we are talking, therefore, about scaling up production, uh, not as a one-off, but maybe over a number of years. This could work to our advantage if we can de-risk those investments. It's important to understand just how much money the private sector has to put into producing a vaccine plant or a vaccine production facility. And it's important to understand that in the past, we've had pandemics where Fortunately, the pandemic was milder or over faster than expected. And now here comes the kicker. Governments who had ordered vaccines cancelled them. And this happened in the H1N1 pandemic in Europe. The consequence of this was that, quite frankly, if you read between the lines, the vaccine producers felt they were burned. So what we have to do is, and this is something which... uh, you know, it's not an exercise I understand many public officials do, but they might want to put themselves in the shoes of a chief financial officer trying to make the case to a corporate board as to why their company should spend hundreds of millions of dollars or euros building a production facility or two uh, to produce vaccines when there is substantial policy risk of cancellation of orders, when there is also the uh, potential for export bans disrupting supplies and deliveries. And therefore, customers, if they don't get their vaccines delivered, they may not pay either. And so there's revenue risk, there's supply disruption risk. All of these risks must call into question whether one wants to do these investments. And so I think what we need to be able to do is think, how do we take some of the risk out of this equation? Well, obviously, issuing export bans would be uh, clearly one thing to do. A second would be perhaps to offer contracts to the vaccine manufacturers that even if the the pandemic uh, turns out to end faster than we expected, those contracts are offered. And just just do a little bit of maths with me here. Suppose by chance we ended up over-ordering the number of vaccines by about 12 billion, which by the way would be imply that we would have ordered twice as much, at least twice as much vaccine than we need. At $20 a shot, that 12 billion is worth $240 billion in money, which sounds like a huge amount of money until you realize it's one quarter of 1% of the world's GDP. And it's actually one twenty-fourth of the potential fallen output that we had last year. So these are, quite frankly, small amounts of money compared to the output losses that we have um, uh, we've seen. So what I, essentially the case I'm making is that at the moment, there's a risk of us doing too little than too much. And we really need to get around the basic proposition that if you want more vaccines, we need more factories producing vaccines. Saying that is one thing. You know, the next challenge, and this is where we really do need the private sector's advice on, is uh, you, know, you can't just build a vaccine production facility overnight. It's, it's not a matter of following a recipe book. This is a, you know, something which requires um, expertise, talent, and alike. If I could lock up all the, the chief operations officers of the world's pharma producing companies, the vaccine producing companies, I would want to know 
what are the constraints here? Do, is there a, an issue of, you know, do we need certain, uh, are there, or is there scarcity in certain types of scientific talent, certain types of project management talent? Where are the bottlenecks? And how do we get over those bottlenecks faster? Right? These are the areas where I think there's a much bigger problem um, than the area which is often emphasized in the trade debate, which is on intellectual property and compulsory licensing. That I don't think is the major constraint. In fact, having read now as much as I can about what the non-trade policy people write about uh, scaling up uh, production in the vaccine industry, uh, the non-trade people talk about the need for the expertise necessary to get production to increase and the need uh, for you know, sharing of tacit knowledge. That is the knowledge that can't be codified. And these are the types of constraints we need to grapple with. Now, you know, this does not fit within the traditional silo of trade economists like myself or trade lawyers, many of contributing positively to the trade policy discourse. I think we need to get outside of our silos and talk to the people who get production done in here and find out where the real bottlenecks are. And then we have to sit down and figure out, okay, how are we going to alleviate them? We may end up with some, uh, you know, that the ability to scale up is not something we can do as fast as we would like, but at least we could, uh, we can have a much better assessment of what the problems actually are rather than fighting over what little supply we have actually produced. So let's pick up on the IPR issue just for a moment since we have received a question on it, which was basically you responded to it in what you were saying, Simon. The question was if compulsory licensing or waiving IPR would help. And I think you are uh, absolutely right in response in the sense that the problem we have is not that we have a lot of unutilized production capacities in the world that could start to produce in the event that we could access the IP. The, the general problem is that we don't have production capacities at all. Uh, or we have too little of it then, and the issue is basically scaling up there rather than to change the IP situation. Now, I've seen there's been some commentaries around this discussion suggesting that we still need to do anything about IP because we are basically providing pharmaceutical companies with an ability to price the vaccines to such high, sort of such prices that sort of the monopoly profits are just too big and we need to get away from Sort of a situation where uh, they may want to limit the production because that enables them to charge higher prices for uh, for the vaccines. Do you think there's anything to that argument? I must say I understand where that argument comes from, but when you think about the scale of the economic losses that we're facing at the moment, I wonder if the people who make that argument have lost all sense of proportion. Let's take an estimate from Larry Summers last year that the US economy was at that time losing $800 billion a month. If the excess profits of the pharmaceutical companies were 1% of that number, and if that's what it took to get jabs in enough people's arms in the United States to get the US economy back on its feet, the question I would put to anyone is, would you not take that deal? You may be offended at the fact that the pharmaceutical companies are making what you think of as excess profits. But are we losing sight of the big picture here, which is that uh, the scale of the economic losses is so large, but not just in the United States and elsewhere, that the sooner we can get our output levels back to where we were, this will swamp any of the costs, any of the profits uh, that the pharmaceutical companies are making. Now, let me second, make a second point here. From what we know about the prices being charged by the pharmaceutical companies, what has leaked out, and you know, again, we had the rather helpful leak by the Belgian health minister, as you may recall on Twitter, the numbers there do not look extortionate. There are indeed, there is indeed variation across the world in terms of prices paid. And there was an article in the British Medical Journal recently, which um, documented that. There are differences, and we can talk about whether or not Developing countries should pay more or less. I think there's a strong case for them paying no more than what is being paid in industrialized countries. But then we should fix that problem, quite frankly, with aid and get let's deal with that problem there. But I fear what's happening is because of this legacy of the TRIPS agreement and the bad blood with the pharmaceutical sectors, some people are going down this rabbit hole in thinking about excess profits, the need for a TRIPS waiver. And they're losing sight of the big picture here. And the big picture is 
of getting more jabs in people's arms and that requires more factories and more production and how do we get to that and uh, and and if the pharmaceutical industry and its shareholders end up making some money out of this it will be a small price to pay compared to the uh, losses that we are already incurring now yes indeed that is actually a very very good point i saw the marginal revolution blog had a few months ago uh, they made sort of a uh, what they call the economics equation of the vaccine which is that it's basic and it's that the cost for vaccines is measured in billions the costs of lockdowns and having societies closed because of the pandemic is measured in trillions so there you go now coming back to what you were saying so as i understand your argument what is required now is to provide insurance from public policy that production environment the demand is going to be there in the future so so that's one sort of stream of of work for governments to do and and in order to get there we need to understand from the private sector what they need basically in order to make these investments in factories what else can government do you talk in the paper about measures that i would classify basically as trust and transparency measures uh, what are those it's certainly the case that distrust is not helping let's just put it let's put it this way so whatever steps we can take to to begin to increase or rather to decrease distrust and at least i mean we don't have to trust each other not to distrust each other i think is the right way of thinking about this that uh, that would be good and you know understanding you know, if there are suspicions that uh, you know, the producers in europe were transshipping goods uh, out in through other countries exempted countries under the old regime to uh, destination countries which shouldn't be receiving it then again you know this is all about how one monitors shipments and how one monitors exports in your own jurisdiction so there's a lot in terms of what the countries can do in terms of making sure that deliveries happen in their own to the um, trading partners who they think should receive them again i don't think countries should necessarily have export controls but uh, if you are going to go down that route i think uh, i mean obviously i guess another area where trust has to be built is and again it speaks to the production side of this it's pretty evident that uh, some of the production plants in europe and elsewhere have had a lot of difficulties and that to be honest is not terribly surprising one of the companies that wanted to be a big vaccine producer hasn't really done this a lot in the past which is astrazeneca but the other sort of strain of vaccines vaccines are very new the mrna vaccines are very new so you know, when you reflect on that you can see for different reasons that the supply scale up even within those companies is with run in for challenges from time to time yeah and uh, and you know i'm a trained economist if i was sitting in the european commission or in a ministry in london or in paris i don't know what it takes to produce a vaccine and i might be a little suspicious about the excuses i'm hearing from the vaccine producers but then rather than be suspicious i think the right reaction is to say right how do i understand this what are the problems here so that we can actually have reasonable expectations about when production can get back on track and perhaps more importantly if there are bottlenecks and alike or problems which these companies are facing how can the government help uh, alleviate them and as i indicated to you earlier you know some of those bottlenecks may come from you know ingredients and supplies but i think i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the bottlenecks come from talent and uh, the, the need to build up experience learning by doing to figure out how to get the vaccine productivity up to the highest possible levels and these are things and i think that there's a you know, there was probably a big blind spot in many public policy officials knowledge about how vaccines get made and and to be fair if you'd asked me a year ago how a vaccine was made uh, i would honestly have turned around and said to you i don't know but at least i think we've all been on a sharp learning curve here and i think uh, we will have to continue to be on the sharp learning curve trying to understand uh, this but i think this once you realize that there's a lot to obviously the production and management of the scaling up of vaccine production then i think we need to be a little more cautious before we start throwing stones at the private sector do you see that there is a role here for the world trade organization or for let's say a selection of wto countries for instance g7 there is a question about this coming from from the audience and let me preface this question by just saying that there was a an op-ed circulating quite a lot of international papers this morning 
by 21 world leaders, including Chancellor Merkel, uh, President Macron, Boris Johnson, and a few others, where they are suggesting some type of international agreement, but they were pretty shy on in <laughs> saying what, what was going to be included there. But, but is, is there a role for international organizations here? There's most definitely a role for international organizations as both monitors of what's going on and also bringing perhaps the, the vaccine innovators and the vaccine contract manufacturers together. So that's a separate area. You're really asking about, is there a role for some type of new accord and negotiation? I mean, I, I've seen a case in principle for, cooperate, uh, for greater cooperation in this area, ideally codified in some type of restraints in the area of trade and health for well over a year. Alan Winters and I uh, wrote about this last year when it became clear that uh, there are ways which you could build confidence in the supply of PPE and other medical equipment by a certain type of obligations eschewing the use of, of export curbs in return for countries which had cut their tariffs for, you know, for delaying the moment when they would restore them to the original levels. So I, the, to me, there's always been, in principle, a deal there. What I must tell you, having tried to follow very closely all the different attempts to try and translate those in-principle good ideas into something in practice, is you, it's a bit like a Russian doll. Every time you look, it gets smaller and smaller. Okay, and I've you know, I've tracked the um, the discussions that are going on uh, with the Ottawa Group. I do not understand why it took so long for the Ottawa Group to move. And in fact, to be honest, at least in the way that they'd originally formulated it, I fear the moment has passed. Uh, for the Ottawa Group to be able to do anything, and certainly not with the leadership of the EU, unfortunately, whose you know, reputation now in these areas is somewhat tarnished. Uh, then when you turn to organizations like the G7, here again, there were, I think, quite some, some very good ideas which were being discussed in the latter half of last year, but these have all been watered down. And uh, it, it's, you almost forget the sense that the health ministries do not want the trade ministries anywhere near this issue. And it's interesting watching the statements from uh, different ministers from the UK government, which of course is the chair of the G7 this year. So I have, I must say, I've lost a little bit of faith that that's going to result in very much. And um, the G20, I think, will be even harder to do anything than the G7. Uh, so what are you left with? Maybe we're left with a, a coalition of countries other than the EU uh, who are interested in taking these issues forward but they may have to do this on their own rather than through a WTO initiative. That, of course, goes against the instincts of most of us because we would like to see that organization reinforced, but it may be that steps have to be taken amongst groups of groups of governments. Uh, but I fear it will not necessarily involve any of the big players who, who at the moment do not seem to be too keen on, on signing up. And how do you look at the sort of scenario forward now or the scenarios going forward are you are you optimistic that we are at least beginning to grapple with the coordination issues that we need to grapple with in order to expand production supply or do you see that there is a much greater risk that more countries will succumb to various forms of government interventions that are going to restrict supply and have spillover consequences on firms' ability to plan for investments in the future. Are there risks that we have other trade frictions that are going to spill over on vaccines? We have a, a question here from one of the audience asking about EU-China relations, whether there are risks for input supply coming from China to Europe. Uh, so how do, you, how do you see us going forward from here, optimistic or more pessimistic? Well, I think that if you look at the evidence on the ground, there are certainly grounds for some pessimism, right? So we have the Indian slowdown, if not outright halt of exports, and who knows how long that will last. And, you know, India is having a tragic uptick in the number of, of infections at the moment. And so long as that persists, I wonder how many um, shipments from uh, India to COVAX and others will, uh, will occur. So I think that the fallout from that quarter will not be good. Then, of course, we had the dynamics we talked about inside the European Union, and I fear that this last authorization regime, which is just was proposed last week, will not be the last word in this. I think they will have to go along in the direction, or I think I, I think they will be tempted to go in the direction that we talked about earlier in order to uh, requisition vaccines. Again, a, a step which I would not necessarily endorse. 
so I think there, there's a potential downside there. There's an upside story if you're if you want to find a, a potentially good story. Uh, by the time we get to May, it's quite possible the United States will have surpluses of vaccines. And so then the interesting question is whether those vaccines will be hoarded or whether they will be distributed. So that's a potential plus there. So that's that's the silver lining on this. I don't hear any big initiatives from, from China or from, from Russia. And so in, I think then all you're left with, if you want to be optimistic, is there's a big change in heart, either at the G7 or the G20. And um, as I said earlier, I don't see that happening. Uh, I haven't seen any evidence of that happening. So I think if you want to cling on to a read of you know, something to hope, look out for, just keep watching what the Americans do with the vast number of excess vaccines that they will have by the end of quarter two this year, assuming there is no slowdown in, in production there or, or something awful happens there. And what do you say about other trade frictions? I mean, there would have been, say, if this has happened 25 years ago when uh, the number of frictions in global trade were far fewer than they are today, you would have perhaps just shrugged it off and say that, no, we don't think countries are going to use vaccines or trade in vaccines or trade in input for, for vaccines in order to escalate other trade conflicts. But, but that may be one of the scenarios today, right? Right. So this was one of my concerns when the EU first brought out its export authorization regime, which was to say, suppose you're a country which is not in the vaccine producers club. How do you get the attention of uh, the European Union? Well, maybe you decide to cross retaliate in some other way, either stopping shipments of certain goods the EU desperately needs or cross retaliating against uh, perhaps the intellectual property of, of European Union multinationals, which are operating in the in the foreign country. So there are options out there if this thing, if uh, this gets ugly, there, but you know, I sincerely hope that it doesn't get ugly, but uh, uh, you know, this thing, I suppose the, the bottom line is things could get a hell of a lot worse if there is a serious deterioration in, in commercial relations. Now amongst the big players, they're doing pretty well in, in undermining relations between them without COVID, right? So we have frictions between the EU and China at the moment. The EU and the US, it's not so much that there are frictions, it just doesn't seem that the headway is being developed as quickly as possible. And the US and China seem to be on a path which doesn't lead to much optimism either. So uh, it is, I think overall, I would describe the situation as extremely fragile. And this is one of these situations where any um, you know, external event, which may have nothing to do with trade, could uh, spiral out of control. I, and I suppose the lesson then is the you know, so the cumulative loss of trust that we've had amongst trade policymakers and more generally amongst foreign policymakers over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, we are now, I think, um, at serious risk of that, uh, uh, that lack of trust preventing a uh, otherwise minor unrelated event to trade spiraling out of control and possibly becoming a threat to uh, the trading system. And that's, that's where we're at. That's the consequence of, of uh, 15 to 20 years, quite frankly, of of non-cooperation. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there are two very quite large questions. I mean, the, the first one is, it goes like this, how to solve the hoarding of vaccines by rich countries? Despite studies and polls showing that sharing vaccines more equally would benefit all, this doesn't happen. So how can they fix it? I'm not sure we are going to be able to persuade countries that have any hoards to, to give them up. And, and by the way, the first big test case to this will be the United States. Uh, but they are the, um, no country now really has a, a big hoard that they're storing onto, which they don't need, right? But the first test case of that will be the US. And I think that will be an interesting situation, trying to persuade a US administration that uh, that they can relax and, and share some of these vaccines. And it will tell us a lot about the Biden administration when when we get to this point, I think, in May. The right way to think about this is not how do we try and persuade someone to give up their vaccines or stop hoarding vaccines when that happens but maybe we should be thinking in the intervening months about how we can do more to scale up production which is again goes takes us back to the discussion we have right so the way to relax a zero-sum problem is to have more stuff to distribute in the first place and in order to have more vaccines we need more vaccine factories and that's what we should work on
Yep. A final question here, which is from someone who actually works in an executive position in the pharmaceutical industry. And what he says is basically this, that, you know, if you look at the orders that have now come from government for 2022 and 2023, they basically take up all the production capacities that exist and all the pl planned production capacity increases for 2022 and 2023. So we're basically talking about what else can be done in, uh, in addition to all the stuff that has already been planned. And here it says that sort of already now there are sort of huge constraints coming on companies because of different export restriction regimes that gives far too little security that you can actually get access to the inputs that you need to have, not just in general, but you need to have them when you need to have them, because this is a very sensitive production chain and one blockage, for instance, an export restriction can have huge consequences on the entire production output coming from a factory. But the other problem, he says, is that very few governments are willing to commit to anything beyond 2023. So no one really knows what's going to happen in 2024 and 2025. And governments that are thinking about it, they would then like to cut costs uh, to such an extent that no one really knows if it's possible to build a new factory now. So that's, that's, that's his comment. Well, only to say that what you've heard there is a, an elaborate explanation of exactly the type of private sector incentive problem that's, that's being faced. And, uh, and for all the you know, criticism of the private sector here, I mean, they, they are responsible to their shareholders. And, uh, and this is a, a sector where there is a huge amount of what we call corporate political risk. And uh, now, this is not an argument for widespread deregulation or anything like this, but it is an argument for, for governments and the private, private sector to come together and to try and understand what are the ways in which we can de-risk these investments? And if it meant extending potential contracts into 2023, 2024, in order to get these facilities built, then that may well be a price worth paying. Again, much would depend on what the costs are, but uh, but you know, just let's not lose sight of the huge output losses we're facing now on top of the huge societal and uh, health-related costs, which uh, many people are paying now. And if we don't fix this thing soon, you know, we'll have more people with long COVID and they will be paying the price for years. So I think there's a real health imperative here, not just an economic one. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this, this afternoon. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.